So this morning our message is going to be called Rabble and Remnant. It's May 17th, 2009. Uh, you're going to be patient with me. I'm preaching from a borrowed sword. It's a good sword, but it's borrowed. Last night, um, while my sister was distracting me with Italian food, I'm teasing. We, we were fellowshipping. Someone broke into my truck and uh, they stole, the, stole some items out of my truck and among them was a Bible. And uh, if you know me for very long, I'd have gladly given them my truck to keep my Bible. Uh, There's not a lot of things that reduce the people in my family to tears. Uh, we've been accused of dry eye syndrome more than once. But the thought of not having my Bible hurts. Uh, that's, that's about the most difficult thing outside of losing a child or something that I could think of. That may seem trivial to you. Uh, but I was 18 when I bought it, 19 when I started to record the things that I have learned in it. So I feel like my life's work uh, is gone. And I began to, to search uh, God's heart about that this morning. My laptop was stolen as well. And, uh, you know, in 2004 I started writing a book that I've been adding to every week since. <laughs> and it, it's gone. And... Uh, Matthew 6 came to me. Do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth. He said, but Lord, it's, it's a Bible. I mean, <laughs> I just want to tell y'all we have tricked the devil. If he thought that we, that I would be destroyed by taking my study notes, my computer, and my Bible, I have hidden the word in my heart. And I don't need a collection of writings to display what I have learned about Jesus because He has taught me that they are displayed in my deeds. And as difficult as it may be to preach from unfamiliar Bibles and to not have the aid of 15 years of study notes beside me, it gives Jesus room to give me new and fresh perspective. And as I began to drive here, truthfully crying this morning, I know that sounds like I'm a pansy, yeah. and that's okay, I'm willing to be a pansy. As I was crying and driving here this morning, I said, Lord, will you do it again? And he said, yes, I will do it again. So, those beautiful nuggets that I learned, those things I would just get to learn again. And... Uh, Bible study programs and those kind of things. Yeah, I've been adding to PC Study Bible since February of 1995, every couple months. Uh, and it's all gone. But he said he would do it again. They destroyed that temple three times in its history. They even destroyed Jesus' body that is the temple. But God has raised it again and again and again. And he will yet raise it again. We are the temple of God. Whatever it is that you face this morning, you need to know something. It is just so that the devil can discourage you. If I did or did not say something to you, if I mentioned something from the pulpit that seemed so pointedly about you that it hurt your feelings, understand something. The devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. There is no right or wrong in this. 
there is no but you should and you shouldn't have. He wants to hurt you. And the way he does that the very best is to separate you from the place and the people that you're supposed to be in. That's why he tries to draw people off into isolation. I want to thank all of you for being here this morning. I know how hard it can be. And if you're honest, if you were in a church where not one other person knew your name and you had no responsibility, would you have got up and come today? See, this church is beautiful. It's beautiful for a reason. We all feel a sense of obligation, and you're supposed to. That's not wrong. I don't care how free the American spirit is that floats from one church to another and feels no obligation to any man or God. That is wrong. We are supposed to feel an obligation to each other, to care about one another's welfare, to feel an obligation towards the Spirit of God to do His will. And what is happening here is called community. We are all beginning to grow and care about one another. If there has been offense, and I'm sure there has, I mean, I speak enough and with many words comes offense. I'm sure there has. There's an easy way to handle it. Come see me. Come see me. I believe just like everybody else. I cry just like everybody else. I'm flawed just like everybody else. And you are too. And together we will find the mercy of God. But don't let anything hinder you from Jesus. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Turn with me to Numbers 11. <clears throat> By the way, they said that that baby Logan was probably blind. We prayed for him. They said he is not blind. Hey. Now they're looking into a neurological deficit. But you know what? We say no. That's right. No. 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 Grace has taught us to say no to ungodliness, and so we say no. And we will stand and fight as long as it takes. Amen? Amen. I've been getting the same word over and over and over from people this morning that have heard it's funny. Uh, it's, 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 like, uh, it's like something terrible and tragic has happened. I told the policeman, by the way, there was $1,200 in cash because we got paid for a building project. Uh, to replace the materials that we used for it. They left the $1,200 in cash because they didn't see it. They took my Bible, my laptop, and my pistol. Uh, they left the radar. They tried to take the truck uh, and weren't, weren't able to. Uh, but the policeman asked me about the value of the things inside and what was the most valuable thing. I said, my Bible. And he looked at me, you know, I said, I know you don't understand. I would gladly trade the truck and everything else for my Bible, and uh, they didn't they didn't quite understand that they couldn't assign a value to it. And I said, "That's right, it's priceless." And I've heard the same report from people over and over and over this morning. What time is all this going on? And I tell them, "Well, between seven forty and about nine o'clock." I was praying for you, then. I appreciate it. Pray for us. I I appreciate that. There is no telling because I would have gladly wrestled with somebody, fought over a gun, or my Bible. And uh, apparently this is one of those things that God has allowed to come into my life for everybody's benefit. When we study this morning, I want you to hear some of those themes in this word. By the way, I got the word before I knew I would be living it. Isn't that funny how that works? You get the word before you have to live it. Okay, are you in Numbers 4? Yes. I'm sorry, Numbers 11? good to have an armor bearer in the church, somebody who walks beside me like Matthew, because his Bible is almost as anointed as mine. 
the words are in nearly the same place on the page and it's well worn, it's well written in. I can't understand his writing. But. In Numbers 11, we have a story that uh, is, is part of our text this morning. It's something that I think will illustrate a point to us and then we're going to move through some other things. Uh, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Uh, nothing is strange about that. The fact that can people, people complained about hardships is not strange. The fact that the Lord heard it is not strange. People complain all of the time and the Lord hears it. In the hearing of the Lord. And when He heard them, His anger was aroused. <coughs> Complaining makes God angry. We need to understand that. Our loving, compassionate, merciful God who desires that none would be lost and all would be saved gets mad when we complain. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. It makes God mad enough to answer from heaven with fire. One of the favorite pastimes in every workplace and in most homes is complaining, right? We don't like what our leader said. We don't like the way they acted, the way they treated me. We don't like how much that one's paid and I'm not paid. We don't like, we don't like, we don't like. I want you to know, saints, it makes God angry. It makes Him angry enough that in this chapter, He answers with fire. In the next chapter, in the very next chapter, He answers with leprosy. In the chapter after that, he banishes an entire nation to death in a desert. And it's one reason always. They argued and complained and it kept them from doing what God called them to do. Could there be any three stronger points that could be made? Even your New Testament says do everything without arguing or complaining. Everything. Are we beginning to get a picture that there is a reaction to hardships we are not allowed to have. We're not allowed to complain. Could we be human and say it's a giant temptation? Of course it is. I want to whine like a stuck pig. I want to cry. The only time I can remember seeing anyone act the way that I feel right now about my Bible is when Buzz Tremaine had to give away his guitar. He moped and cried and walked around for about a week like he had died. I understand. I really do. It's the thing that he loved the most in the world and he loved it for Jesus. It was some seven years later we found out that the man that he gave it to was leading revival worship in South America. Now, out of all the people on the globe, how did that news come back to us? We didn't know the person he gave it to. He walked over handed it to somebody at a table. And yet that news made its way all the way back to us through miraculous events. If you don't think God cares about what's going on in your life, you don't know God. The reason He came and brought them out of Egypt was He heard, He saw, He looked at their hardship. He cares. He cares very much that Angie has shames. He cares very much that they're giving Ryan and Allison bad reports about Logan. He cares that John lost his job. He cares about those things. When we complain, it prevents him from moving. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah because 
fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. What is it that the people of God are complaining about? They are complaining because they had different kinds of food in Egypt at no cost. Boy, in the devil crafty. It's true. They did not go to Egypt's Burger King and pay at an adobe hut for their food. What was the price that they ate cucumbers, onions, leeks, and meat in Egypt? Slavery. Slavery. They traded their freedom, and here they are willing to trade their freedom again for leeks, onion, garlic, cucumber, and the meat in Egypt. The devil has a way of after you have been set free in an area, after you have experienced the grace, love, and mercy of God over a long time period of coming in and saying, but weren't some things really better back then? Do you remember how you used to blah, blah, blah? At no cost to you? This Christian walk is too hard. There's too much sacrifice. The way is too narrow. The path is too hard on your feet. Over here is the easy way. The broad path, the highway, and it's no cost. The other's a tollway, Eric. You give up your every dream. You give up your every vision. You'd be willing to sacrifice your very self at any moment. This is no cost to you. But we need to understand, saints, the way he offers is slavery. It's slavery. To decide to dwell in an emotion that God says is unhealthy to dwell in. Not unhealthy to experience, not unhealthy to have, unhealthy to make a defining characteristic of your life is slavery. To dwell in bitterness. Slavery. To do what the Word says not to do results in slavery. They had manna every day. I want you to think for a minute. He goes into a description of manna here. Uh, Cucumbers, melons. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. Throughout the Bible, olive oil is the anointed. The manna tasted like something anointed by God. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. <coughs> they were receiving something daily from God, but over time, it was easy to take for granted and think that the world had something to offer that was no cost. This is really the temptation every time you face hardship, though, isn't it? Somebody has all of your stuff and they're holding it hostage. You think... The cost of being a Christian is I have to lose my stuff. It wouldn't cost me anything if I went and just took it. Right? That's right. Can you not feel that temptation? Absolutely. I stood outside of a man's door in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and trembled, fell on my knees and cried because with everything in me, I wanted to kick down his door and take back what was mine. And I knew I could. 
that moment when I gave it to Jesus, sucked up my pride, walked away, Jesus did for me what I could not do. The man called Jennifer and returned my deposit. Now, what we don't realize is that having it our own way, there's another Burger King reference, I can't help it. Having it our own way is slavery. Because when we do it our own way, it never results in life. It results in loss. A hundred percent of the time. This is the basic part of being a Christian is acknowledging that God's way is the only way and learning to depend upon it. To refuse to allow your mind to dwell on certain things. You know, the Word says don't entertain an accusation against an elder without two or more witnesses. I watched an entire church come unraveled at the sinking. Drop from 240, 50 people to 40 or 50 people because that single scripture was not obeyed. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder without two or more witnesses. I said, but God's mercy is there. The church still stands. It does. His mercy is there. It's taken about 10 years to get back on track. I don't want those kind of losses in my life. Have you ever craved other food and experienced loss? Sometimes that's how we experience loss. Other times, it's not that you did anything wrong. You just experienced loss. But right now, let's talk about craving other food. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? You ever complained about your lot in life? Why did you give me such hard-headed kids? Why did you put me in this workplace, Lord? Why am I married to this person? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Lord, what did I do that my life is so mad? While I'm working on my air conditioner, five days longer than it should be, my car is overheating and the air went out. What did I do, Lord? Have you never felt this way? Come on, I know you yes. have. Yeah. Drove home last night and I'm thinking, oh, what is it? Why didn't you tell me? Why, why didn't you just say, go get your Bible out of the truck? I would have went. One time I took a man's motorcycle. He's working for a place called Grave Chevrolet. And when I knew that he was going to trade his motorcycle in on a car, I got excited because I knew the motorcycle had to be appraised. And I couldn't sleep that night because I was thinking of riding his motorcycle, right? It so consumed my thoughts that truthfully that's all I thought about for about 24 hours and then he showed up with the motorcycle. And I said, you know what? <clears throat> you might want to come back tomorrow. We'll have your vehicle ready for you. Uh, we'll have researched all the financing, but I'm going to have to shop around your motorcycle to get as much money for it as possible because I want to make the best deal I can for you. He threw me the keys and said, I'll see you tomorrow at noon. He had not been gone 10 minutes, and I was on Government Street at about 80 on his motorcycle. It was fun. Until I hit a Park State Trooper's personal vehicle. And the handlebars dug into the fright front, right front fender, and it tore the metal from the front of his personal vehicle all the way to the back. And then I pulled the handlebars out and laid the bike on its side and slid it about 50 feet down in front of an audience. Everybody in the McDonald's was 
staring right out the window at me. And when I got up, my legs were bloody. I was bleeding in my boots. And uh, the state trooper came out of the McDonald's. And he looked like Barney Fife. And he began to yell at me and call me all kind of names, beginning with stupid and lots more S's. Two B's. An O in there somewhere. And uh, an old cowboy was standing there and he said, I don't think I'd let him talk to me like that, sir. It's just kind of like could any more be heaped upon here. And I sat there and I thought, Lord, why didn't you warn me? He said, you don't listen. <laughs> when I got back to the dealership, they had a poster up there titled Crash. And it appeared in my office and everywhere I went for weeks and weeks and weeks. We have experiences that are painful. Some are our own doing and some are not. But when we crave other food, you can be sure. When you want to do it your way instead of God's way, you can be sure you are headed for a painful experience. There are some you can do nothing about. We're talking about the ones you can do something about. If we can agree that storms are going to come no matter what you do, can we also agree that it would be good not to cause any? Yeah. If, if they're going to come no matter what, we don't need any that are self-generated. We self-generate our own problems when we begin to crave some way other than God's way. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep on wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people myself the burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. <laughs> Sound like Moses is whining a little bit, huh? Imagine that. Even Moses, the most humble man on the planet, had some flaws. I bet the pastor of a little storefront church has got more. Shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Put me to death right now. He wants to just give up, right? If I have found favor in your eyes, and do if I found favor in your eyes, put me to death if I found favor in your eyes, and do not let my face, do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the Spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell these people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. He goes on to say, you've rejected the Lord. By the way, Moses does exactly what he says. See, Moses was one man who had the Spirit of God among many who did not and some who were rabble dedicated to their own way. And yet Israel is called one nation. So as I began to think about this, one nation that was made up of a remnant with the Spirit, a majority without, and some that did not were even called rabble. That's a nice way to say refuse. Trash. I thought, man, Israel, that's kind of crazy. 
Now I thought about the next chapter. In the next chapter, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses and get most of the nation to do the same. God, again, defends Moses. In the next chapter, Caleb and Joshua stand and say, we can certainly take this land. Let us take the land. But the majority of the people would not. I said, man, Israel, what is wrong with you people? I realized Israel was one nation that was comprised of a righteous remnant and also rabble. And I am one human being that is comprised of a righteous remnant and also rabble called the flesh. Now, what's unfortunate is because we're born into it, the flesh is the majority most of the time. The flesh is what has the loudest voice naturally. It's what says, I want the meat in Egypt. It's what says, do it your own way. It's what tries to compel you. And I thought about the solution that God began to give Moses. God began to give Moses a solution that said, multiply the remnant. You go and put your hands on 70 people and I will help you make them like you. Do you know that Moses did this and, and not all 70 showed back up at the next meeting? If you keep reading, he, not all of them came back. It's kind of like baptizing people. They don't all show back up. You know that where they were in their own tents, the Spirit of God still fell on them because God had anointed them for the task. Here's the thing. There is rabble within you. It is that voice that says, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's that voice that says, I don't care what he says or who he's talking about. He doesn't know me. It's that voice in you that is defiant towards what God says and wants to do it your own way. But there is also a righteous remnant in you. This is the character of Christ that was an outside element that has been introduced in. And we need to multiply the character of Christ in us. Otherwise, we are destined to oppose what is God. We are destined to die in the desert. Do you know God's solution in the 13th chapter to the rabble that was with them? He said, mm, those of you that will not be converted into the righteous remnant, you're going to march in this desert until you drop dead. Not one of you will ever inherit what God said. Sometimes God brings us through trial after trial after trial to allow the remnant to grow. You start to realize, wow, even though this is my gut instinct of how something should be done, even though this is the majority of what I want to do, it's never worked out well for me. Jesus, what should I be doing? And the righteous remnant in you begins to grow. The remnant that is spiritual must grow. The rabble must die. Turn with me to Romans 8. In Romans 8, we're going to pick up in the 12th verse. This is on the same topic that we've been discussing. A righteous remnant and a rabble. And the rabble tends to be in majority. The righteous remnant tends to be in minority. But God multiplies the righteous remnant. He will multiply it in you if you give Him the chance. Look at the 12th verse. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, 
but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. We have an opportunity with this remnant that was put in us to multiply it, to let it invade our every thought, to invite His presence to permeate our lives so that no longer are our thoughts just that rabble. No longer are they just natural thoughts. We have something that is supernatural inside of us. So that when you face a land that is riddled with giants, your very first thought is not, we can't do it. They're too big for us. When your leader, in Numbers 12, makes a choice you don't like, your first thought is not, surely God doesn't speak through him only. And God spits in your face. So that when you're being fed by manna in Numbers 11, your first thought is not, golly, can't we have something besides manna? You learn to let your desires and God's desires commingle. You learn to let His vision for your life become your vision for your life. You learn how to let Him be God of your life. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you hear the tenses in these words? When Israel is standing in the desert in Numbers 11, and they don't see water, and they're eating the same food day after day after day, the rabble among them, their flesh begins to think backwards to all they had in Egypt. And one of the things about it is it's a selective memory. It doesn't remember the great cost. It says we ate these at no cost. They forget that their lives were enslaved. <coughs> what they start to dwell upon is that God is not meeting their needs. Now if we could throw stones at Israel, is that really so different than any person you've ever known or you? When we face trouble of any kind, when we're looking at it, don't we begin to wonder whether or not God will meet our needs? Oh, we know that He does it. We know that He heals cancer. We know that He even raises the dead. But will He do it now? Will He do it for me? Then, don't we at times begin to think about other people that you know that don't have to endure the same kind of hardships. They don't have the same kind of problems. And if you are not careful, the rabble that is inside of you will outweigh the remnant that is inside of you. And guess what you get to do? March another few years in the desert. Because what has to happen is the rabble has to be put to death. We have to learn to identify the flesh's voice and deny it. Otherwise, we remain gods to ourselves. And what our king has called us to is to deny ourselves, the rabble in us, and take up his will, the righteous remnant in us. <coughs> 
Saints, anytime we look at Israel and we throw a stone, we look and we go, how could they have just walked through the Red Sea and now be complaining? Is it really any different than having been born again and every debt forgiven in a year, 10 years, 20 years later? Be questioning whether or not God's been good to you. But the truth is, every one of us has been there. There's a process going on in us. John the Baptist claimed it rightly. He said, He must increase and I must decrease. The Christian walk, what we call maturing, is less of you and more of Him. We sing those songs all of the time, but when you're put in a process that requires it, we sing a different song. We squeal. We whine. We wail. And I want to tell you the truth, the reason we started where we did, it makes God angry. It made Him angry enough with His own people, saved by grace, no different than us, brought out of Egypt, no different than us, adopted by God, no different than us, princes with God, no different than us, that He called down fire and burned up some of them. I don't want to be in that position. And yet, inside of me there is a war that rages over every decision. It's what Paul described in Romans 6 and 7. I will die to one and live to the other. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Even the earth is personified in the Scripture as waiting, as anticipating, as looking for something. It says they all look like little gods. They're all made in God's image. But they don't act like God. Well, that one does sometimes but not all the time. That one never does. Which one are the sons of God? And they are waiting for the full manifestation of that righteous remnant and for the rabble to be cleared away. Have you ever looked for something in a drunk drawer and you couldn't find it because it was obscured by the rabble? No. Maybe you could have a diamond in there. But because of all the batteries that shouldn't be in there, they're not good anyway. All the scotch tape that's in there, the half decks of cards... Maybe the broccoli your kids wanted to hide. You can't see what is really valuable in there. Even the creation itself is waiting for this to get sorted out. So that our shepherd will come and separate one from another. The nations before him. Sheep from goats. Not based on you, what you believe. Based on what your beliefs caused you to do. Did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you do the things he told you to do. Because we've learned, we're Americans, the whole world talks a good game. But where is the walk? And I ask you, saints, where is the walk? When does that really get tested? Is it when things are rosy? Is it when things are going well? Where is the walk? You believe that your king has overcome death? How do you handle it when you face death? You believe that your king's overcome cancer? How do you handle it when you face cancer? You believe that your God will meet your needs, that He will provide for you, that if necessary, He will rain bread from heaven. Then do you panic the first time you get a bill? Are you filled with anxiety over the thought of losing your job? See, all of these things are the voice of the rabble within us. But the righteous remnant says, my God will never leave me. He will never forsake me. My job is not my source anyway. And cancer doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the enemy. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subject, subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We were called to walk in complete and absolute freedom. The only thing that has a hold on us is the rabble within us. This is why James says our own evil desires drag us away into temptation. They give birth to sin and when sin is full grown, it will kill you. See, we act sometimes like, oh, it is the devil that did that. When the truth is, it is the rabble within us that is aroused by the devil's temptation and we follow away from God. We would have no excuse, I'm sorry, we would have an excuse if we had not been given the Word, if we had not been given His Spirit as a righteous remnant within us. You know, even before people were baptized in God's Holy Spirit, Moses looked right at them and said, this is not too difficult for you. The Word is near you. It's in you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. He said it in Deuteronomy. And yet, most of theology today says God just gave them all of that Word to show them how guilty they were. Really? He said it's not too difficult for you. All of it could be summed up as love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and your neighbor as yourself. That is not too difficult for me. The Lord is a warrior. Moses said it as soon as he saw Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. The Lord is a warrior and He has called members of His body as a warrior. He said, well, how on earth do we do that? When someone else will not show you love, you don't require it. You just love them anyway. When a situation presents itself where you could do what you want to do, you choose to force yourself to do what God would do. Luke 16.16 16 says, The kingdom of God has been advancing from the days of John the Baptist until now, and the forceful force their way into it. I'm suggesting that the righteous remnant needs to multiply. I'm suggesting that the voice of Joshua and Caleb needs to outweigh the voice of the many. And that this is how you know that you're saved. Romans says that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What the church says is we will just create doctrines and a single experience at an altar that makes you feel saved. This is not what the Word teaches. The Word teaches a lifestyle of working this out with God and Him testifying with you because you are listening to Him and not to the rabble. Turn with me to Judges. <laughs> Matthew, your Bible works almost as good as mine. <coughs> I decided that. This all looks different than this book. How about Judges 13? There. That's what Paul said. Uh, so and so who loves to be first. <laughs> we really can't throw stones at it. We name our churches first. If you can't get there first, then you call it second. Uh, judges 13. I didn't mean that about any churches in our town. That just happens to be any town you go to. We visited a friend in Big Bone Lick, 
Kentucky. That's an actual name of an actual city. It seems to refer to dinosaur remnants that they found. And do you know that there is a first big bone lick Baptist church there? Not throwing any stones at the Baptist. But when you have to have the city name and the word first, it creates some pretty uncomfortable names. That's ridiculous. I was at a ski resort and saw Our Lady of the Snows. Of all the things Mary saw in her life, snow skiing was never one of them. She gave birth to the Messiah, but she never slalomed. You all in uh, Judges 13? Another one called Wounded Heart Ministries. Well, that's a great place to go for healing. Isn't it? Might as well just open a bar. Judges 13, we're going to start in the first verse. I'm not trying to throw stones at any person or any group. Look, we don't have all this together. The point is, if it were left up to us and not the righteous remnant inside of us, not one of us would make it. It is His grace planted in us which leads us to repentance and salvation. Period. That is our only hope. But I want you to understand, James says the word planted in you can save you. Why does it say can? Because not everybody who receives it does it. You're not righteous from hearing the word. You are righteous when your trust in God produces obedience. You are called to the faith that produces obedience. If faith without works is dead, works without faith is also dead, there's a relationship there. If you really believe, it will show up in your life. Jesus calls it fruit. In Judges 13, I want to remind our church of some things about you. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's a great opening. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. I told you some trials that come our way are the result of craving other foods. Some are not. We will cover both. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appealed to her and said, You are sterile and childless. That's a great word, huh? You ever wanted to have something? I know a woman prayed for a baby for 14 years. How would you like that the first words from a heavenly visitor are you're sterile and childless? Like, thanks Captain Obvious for the journey into the blatantly (laughs) well-known. But it doesn't stop there. Faith does not deny our circumstances. Trust in God acknowledges the circumstances, but reasons God is able to do something about it. If you have heard that faith is this positive thinking that says sickness can't even touch you, you are wrong. Faith is sickness has touched me, and God will heal it. Faith is I get into trouble often, but God will deliver me. Faith is not... Life is a bed of roses. I'm okay. You're okay. People are terrific and life's great. Business is good, like the bumper sticker says. If that were faith, any positive person would be safe. And that is not the way that it works. You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Church, I have spoken to you many times about being pregnant with a promise, with a vision. Our God looks at people who are not capable of producing life and says, you're going to produce something that is life. You are going to bring something about that is awesome. He takes ordinary humble men and does extraordinary things with them. This is why nearly every father of the faithful, nearly every one of the patriarchs, has in their 
family history in their life's walk impossible birthing situations. Everything from Abraham right on down. We're birthing a preschool next door. Right now, it looks absolutely impossible. We have signed the lease. We've smiled, shaken hands, and told them no problem. The truth is, it's a huge problem. We're about 6000 short in just the build-up cost. But let me ask you something. If we turn away from that which God has told us to do, would we be rabble or remnant? So Eric, but if God told you to do it, He'll provide. I understand. Sometimes you have to stand and wait for the Red Sea to split. When God calls His people to cross over the Jordan, He picked the time that was flood stage. Is it a surprise to anybody in here that Jeremy's enduring what he's doing? That Jan is enduring what she's enduring? That Darnell is enduring what she's doing? That all of us are in the Garden of Gethsemane press. That word means olive press. Right as we're trying to take a new step? Of course it shouldn't. The enemy meets with resistance, that which he knows is of God. I brought you here to tell you that it doesn't matter how sterile you feel. It doesn't matter how childless you feel. God says He is going to bring forth life and it's for a reason. You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink. It's funny you'd have to tell somebody who's a believer that. Maybe they drink fermented drink. And that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. That Hebrew word there is polal. I've taught you about this before. It means an extraordinary separation. A miraculous separation. He's going to be unique among all the peoples of the earth. When God births in you a vision, when He says, although you are childless, I am going to bring forth something, it's going to be unique. We don't need to go shop for one. I don't need to make sure my kid looks like Gabe's. Gabe doesn't need to make sure his kid looks like Chris's. Our vision is supposed to be as unique as we are. Listen to this. Set apart to God from birth, and He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. They are in slavery. And this person is receiving the news. I know it looks like you can't have children. But your son will begin the deliverance of God's people from the enemies of God. The very thing that God wants to birth in you is salvation for others' benefit. See, Christ, the righteous remnant planted in you as He fills you, you, as He moves through your life like leaven moves through a whole batch of dough, as He rises, as the kingdom in you rises like leaven in bread, He draws all men to Himself. We are supposed to be pregnant with the Spirit of Christ. We are supposed to be decreasing that He might increase. The difference between the righteous remnant and the rabble is rabble always gives birth to death and slavery. The remnant always gives birth to freedom and life. Always. Turn with me to the 14th chapter. Could be in the first verse. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go and get her for me as my wife. It's kind of a strange thing, huh? Is there anybody in the church world that might go, you know, Samson... 
your desires are really misplaced. What's wrong with you? I mean, you're called to begin the deliverance of Israel. What are you doing even in Timnah? What are you doing looking at the women there? Is there anybody that could look at that and go, that's crazy? It might be a better question to ask, is there anybody who wouldn't look at that and go, it's crazy? Watch what his parents said. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Like, are you kidding me? You really had to go dumpster diving to find this one, Samson. <laughs> Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Saints, we are called to give birth to salvation. We are called to begin the deliverance of God's people. This happens in our sphere of influence everywhere we are. This happens when you run into somebody who has no hope and you provide for them hope by telling them about Jesus. When we see them doing things, that don't look godly. When we ourselves are in positions that you can't figure out how on earth is God at work in this, the rabble amongst us, inside of us, says God's not at work in it. We've zigged so far away from God that we can't be back on track. It's hopeless. We might need to realize that God is just looking for an opportunity to bring you into contention with the enemy. The church, for the most part, hides within its own four walls. It keeps to itself. It's polite and quiet. The church of the living God went out and took the world by storm. It hung out with whores and tax collectors. It stood on trial publicly. It was beaten and imprisoned. The church today in America doesn't resemble that. Why is it? I think sometimes we've forgotten that the opportunities in our life are an occasion to confront the enemy. I'm not happy somebody stole my Bible. I'm not happy they stole my laptop. But the thought did occur to me that God might use that as a seed somewhere. Mm -hmm. It might be an opportunity to confront the enemy. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, I'm not happy at all to hear that Darnell's little dog died yesterday. Mm -hmm. That hurts. It feels like a child when you've had a dog that long. But it might be an opportunity to confront the enemy might be the opportunity to look at death and laugh and say, you really don't have a hold on me. Get used to the grip that you think you have because you're under my king's feet. I'm not happy that my mother was diagnosed with cancer. But what if this is just an opportunity for the display of God's glory? See, these are not just stories. These are people's lives that were recorded and lived out for our benefit. If I were Samson's parents, I would not be happy about this. But what they couldn't see was God was allowing this difficulty because He was going to bring Samson into that place where he needed to be. They didn't know. They did not know. What is it that you don't know? I don't know. Leave room for God to work. Romans 8.28 tells us in all things God works together for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. If your Bible stole if your mother's diagnosed with cancer, if your air conditioner goes out, if your dog dies, if your children are sick like Logan, God will work in all things. Don't listen to the rabble. 
Don't listen to that voice inside you that says you did something wrong and God's abandoned you. Mm -hmm. God is working on your behalf if you will simply do what He tells you to do. Stand strong. Wait until you see the deliverance. <coughs> He's looking for an occasion to confront the enemy. Listen to what happens next before we move to 15. Samson went down from Timnah together with his father and mother. As he approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. If he was not on his way to go meet the young Philistine honey, he would not have any experience tearing lions in two. Sometimes God will use the negative events that are in your life to show you that you can overcome anything. There are those among you today that have experienced the very worst in life. Things like burying your own children. It really does not get any worse than that in human existence. That's as bad as it gets. And you know what? You are still here. You have torn that lion and now when another faces you, you know it can be done. You can stand like David in the presence of rabble like Saul and say, you know what? This Philistine will just be like the bear or the lion that I faced before. When it stole from me, I chased it down. I grabbed it by the nape of the neck and I struck it and I killed it. We need to look at our trials as opportunities to overcome. We need to look at them that way and not be overcome simply because we're faced with resistance. It is an honor to be faced with resistance. It means you're dangerous to the enemy. Turn with me to the 15th chapter. I have two places left to go with you. And then we'll get a chance to live what we preach. In the 15th chapter, starting in the 9th verse, what I wanted you to get from these previous two, by the way, is that you were born to begin the deliverance of God's people. That's why you're here. To spread salvation to the earth. To subdue the enemies of God. This is man's calling. And in Christ it's renewed. It's expounded upon. We are supposed to be God's hands and feet on the earth. The second one is, there are many events in your life you may not be able to see the glory of God in. You may not see His working. But it might just be that He's seeking an opportunity to confront the enemy. We must be willing. Be like your hand getting mad at you if you were a boxer from bringing it into collision with the enemy. We're meant for this. We're supposed to. Look at 15 verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? What a strange question for an occupied people. Judah means praise, praise of God. They're supposed to be a sovereign nation with no king except the Almighty. And they're asking the Philistines who are declared enemies of God, why have you come to fight with us? This is a little bit like a Christian going, oh, you might make the devil mad. Don't talk about demons, it scares me. Don't go on a mission trip. You know, if you go do something like that, man, the devil will be furious. The first mission trip we went on as a church cost me a transmission. What a price to pay, huh? A transmission. People got born again. People got born again. What can you truly say you've sacrificed in your life for the kingdom? What can you truly say that you have? Is that this short or long? Because when we share in His sufferings, we share in His glory. That makes you glad to give up anything that it takes to do something for Jesus. 
What are the people of God doing asking the Philistines, why have you come to fight with us? They apparently have made a treaty with the enemy. You leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. This is where most of the church world is. Looks pretty on Sunday. We all have on our nice clothes. We have our big, beautiful buildings, but we're not really in contention with the enemy. We're about making people feel better about themselves. You know? Come on down. Get saved. I will give you a donut and a gift certificate. We'll have a high attendance Sunday and then tell everybody that's our church attendance. How many are there if we don't have an air conditioner? Three, four percent? But our church is 15,000 strong. The church of the living God cannot be contained in a building. And it cannot be overcome. This is my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's because you're supposed to be in contention with the gates of hell, but not overcome it. This is right where we're supposed to be. Look what happens. What? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went to the cave in the rock of Etiam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? The people of God are angry. The rabble in the nation of Israel are angry that a righteous remnant wants to fight with the enemy. They're angry. They would rather just say, you're okay, we're okay, we'll accept your rule in our lives. This be like if Israel never wanted to come out of Egypt. They liked the leeks and onions so much that it was not worth leaving. I want to ask you, have you had enough of the other food in your life? Enough of complaining? Enough of arguing? Enough of negative things to want to leave it? Or would you rather just lay down next to it and pretend it doesn't exist? In this church, you will never be comfortable with your life as it is. Never. Because it is life-changing ministries. When you achieve something in the Lord, we're going to tell you achieve more. And when you achieve that, we're going to say achieve more. Because our lives are supposed to be progressing and growing more and more towards Jesus until we see the Lamb lay down with the lion. Until we see the glory of God all over the earth. So, well, Eric, the word says be content in all things. The way that you're content is you know you're right where you're supposed to be with God. He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Why would the church tie up its champion? Why would the people of God tie up the man who was born for their deliverance? Maybe it makes them uncomfortable to be at war with the Philistines. Saints, I'm asking you not to tie up the righteous remnant inside of you. That that voice that is there that says, don't stand for this. That voice that's there that says, go pray for that man to get out of the wheelchair. That you do not tie it up. You don't say, no, 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 I'll just go on with today like I did yesterday. American Idol comes on in a few minutes. I can watch Friends tonight. How about Seinfeld or Simpsons? Let's do something, anything other than think about what I should be doing for Jesus. I'm asking that you don't tie it up. What happens is not that the enemy has invaded your life and defeated you. It's that we've listened to the rabble inside of us and we've given up that which is ours. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. Well, thanks. Thanks. I'm doing this for your benefit and you're going to tie my hands. 
We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him from the rock. The devil is looking for areas in your life that he can bind your hands because your hands are supposed to be the hands of God. When you lay your hands on someone, it's supposed to be as if God Himself were laying hands on that person. When you speak to someone, you are supposed to be speaking the very words of God. So that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, it is as if He were making His appeal, God making His appeal through you as an ambassador. This is what we're called to. They bound Him with two new ropes. Why wouldn't they just use old nasty ropes? Why not any ropes they had laying around? In the natural, it's because older ropes would break easier. Newer ropes are strong, right? In a spiritual sense, it's because the enemy never attacks you in the same way twice. Unless he's used to winning there. I've learned to accept the loss of a lot of things. So he took my Bible, my most precious possession, period. I'm really not joking when I say I would much rather give up my truck than my Bible. That is really not a joke. But you know what? It didn't matter how new the ropes were or how many they used. When the Spirit of God came upon Samson, He shook them off like charred flax. If you've already given your life to the King of Kings, if He is all that matters inside of you, if that's all there is and you have no other gods, really what can be done to you? What consequence is worth becoming rabble instead of the remnant? There is none. There's nothing that's worth that. Listen to this. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. <laughs> the people tried to offer him up as a sacrifice. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it. A fresh jawbone. Why not a sword? He didn't have one. Maybe the enemy stole his. <coughs> Why not an old jawbone? Saints, we're supposed to go out and look for manna every day. We are supposed to gather from our God every day. It is supposed to be fresh, daily bread that nourishes us, that strengthens us. A lot of us have been going to battle with 15-year-old notes. A lot of us have been going to battle with an experience that is two decades in the past. Our king wants us to find a fresh jawbone to strike down the enemy. Fresh. Where is your jawbone? When is the last time you got on your face and heard from God? Don't tell me it's when you were saved. That was your birth. That'd be like not seeing your father and mother since the day you were born. Said, but I've been in church. I know you can live in the same house and not be around, not interact, not love and be intimate with. Where is your jawbone? Listen to what he did. Then Samson said, I'm sorry, he grabbed it, struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a, jaw, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. Understand whatever God puts at your disposal can be used to defeat the enemy. I might be able to outrun Miss Suzanne. I'm not sure. But you know what? God has put powerful prayer in the woman. Sometimes we put limits on ourselves that God has never put upon us. We don't realize that you don't have to have a sword. 
You don't have to have a javelin. You don't have to have a spear. You know what you have to have? The Spirit of God. He is not lacking in anything. With a donkey's jawbone, he made donkeys of them. You know, there is an antagonistic spirit in this writing. There is kind of a, you picked a fight with me and now I made an idiot of you. The church has lost that kind of thinking. When the devil has stolen from you, it is okay to want your revenge upon him. He's defeated. You don't have to quietly accept anything. He's taken my Bible. I'm going to take more lives for Jesus. I'm going to. Wednesday, two people got baptized in God's Spirit. In the last month, several people in our church have gotten born again. I'm going to make sure that next month, more than last month. And you know what? Maybe he'll pick an easier target. Don't see ground to the enemy. Don't listen to the rabble within you. With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Why not frame it? Why not build a church around it? We could have a little box next to a communion wafer here, and you could bow down in genuflex to the jawbone, because God used the jawbone to give me a great victory. The jawbone is great. We do that with our Christian leaders all of the time. This man raised the dead. Look, i got a video of it. It's awesome. Well, what we need to do is get to his ministry. No, he's just a jawbone. He's just a jawbone and he was used that day. Where's your jawbone? We want to make a trophy and a demagogue out of anybody who does anything right because it keeps us from having to go find our own place and do it right. God has called you, though sterile and childless, to birth salvation. He has brought you into contention with the enemy in ways you never could have guessed because He's seeking an opportunity to confront the enemy. Maybe everybody in your life has tried to tie you up and tell you you can't. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have enough training. But it will fall off you like charred flax if you just dwell in the Spirit of God. I don't have a sword. I don't have a spear. I don't have a javelin. I don't have what I need. The Lord says, what do you have? Five loaves, two fishes? What do you have? It will multiply by my touch. It is not about your resources. It's about your remnant. It's about the Holy Ghost in you. He threw it away when he was done because it would not be good tomorrow. Tomorrow he would have to find something else. He used city gates sometimes. Other times... He tied foxes together. Other times he used his bare hands. He used whatever the Lord provided. You know, the Bible's full of men who did this, who go down on a snowy day into a pit with a club and kill a leopard. Or a seven foot tall Egyptian. Or stand the ground in a field of lentils and strike down 800 men. Or whose hands grew frozen to a sword. And we admire them. In fact, they're like trophies. What are we doing? What mountains were impossible to climb until you did it? What can you look back on and say, that was a young lion, now I'm ready for the old lion? Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi. Did it sound like Samson was complaining? It did to me too. And I told you, complaining makes God angry. But there's a caveat here. 
You know the one thing God is not angry about? Complaining that you need more of Him. You tell Him you want more provision, He might get mad and burn up the camp. You tell Him you don't like your leaders, He might spit leprosy in your face. You tell Him I can't do what you've called me to do, I won't do it, He might march you for 40 years in the desert. You tell Him I'm so thirsty, I need more of you, must I die if I don't have you? He'll give you what you need. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up a hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called Enhakor and it is still there in Lehi. Enhakor means a fountain for him who cried. We sing songs like, Fill me up, Lord. He cannot fill what is already full. Pour yourself out. Find your jawbone. Go to work doing what you were called to do. And you will receive as much of Him as you can handle. You know what? In Hakor works anywhere you are. That's not what the place was called. It was called that after He cried out. If you do it in this parking lot, it becomes in Hakor. If you do it in your home, it becomes in Hakor. Our God fills the needs of His people. If you're thirsty, He will give you more. Samson threw away his jawbone because it wouldn't be good tomorrow. What did David kill Goliath with? A stone. What's another way to say stone? Rock. What happened to the rock he killed Goliath with? Sank into his head and was never heard from again. Why? Wouldn't you have went and dug it out? I tell you the truth. If I was David or Samson, I would have both of those things. And when people came over to my house to eat, I'd remind them. If I was an insurance agent in Baton Rouge and I played football at LSU, I'd have a helmet in there. Right? You see this all the time. People holding on to old trophies. You know why they didn't? Not only would they not be good next time, David knew the secret. Turn with me to Psalm 62. Thanks for this, John. Joy. My little boy came home from a youth meeting and quoted this scripture. He's got it memorized. <clears throat> My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. It was never about the jawbone. It was never about the rock. It was about God multiplying His righteous remnant in you. It was about where there was just Moses, then there were 70 others after they touched Moses. It was about when there was Joshua and Caleb, their voice remained, and after 40 years, a whole nation was willing to go into the promised land. It is about letting Christ permeate every area of you so that it doesn't matter whether it's a rock, a jawbone, or five loaves and two fishes. God will accomplish His will in your life. You know what is necessary for all of this? Simply put to death the rabble. Live towards the remnant. Live towards the Word. And then, what Mark 9, 23 says becomes true. Nothing is impossible for him who believes. Nothing. Not the conquering of cancer. Not the taking of more sweets. Not the changing of children's lives. Not the family alcoholic's salvation. None of those things are impossible. Do you want to see the impossible? Yes. The enemies looked at us many times and said, you're sterile. 
you're childless. People made special visits in the beginning to tell me our church would not work. I ran into every broken down pastor in Sugarland, Texas that had given up. But we are here. And that child may not be full grown, but it is growing. Amen. And Christ will be formed in us. And we will accomplish His will. We are not overcome. Pressed, but not crushed. Amen? Amen. Stand your feet. We'll pray. Then we'll go to a men's meeting and whatever else we do. <laughs> Galatians 5.25 tells us to stay in step with the Spirit. To do that, you need to be able to hear from Him. Make sure that you're making every effort to hear from Him. The rabble's voice can be very, very loud. Whatever you feed most tends to win. If all you're doing is watching UFC. And you're not reading the Word. Don't be surprised if your first reaction when you encounter difficulty is to want to throw it into an arm bar. But if you've been stuffing yourself with the Word, you know how to call on 12 legions if you need them. I'd rather the 12 legions. Yes. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we're asking that Your hand would move in our midst. Lord, we have become angry that the enemy has often put out our eyes and stolen from us. We confess at times it has been our own doing. We've wandered away from you. And at other times it's just because he's a thief. Like Samson, Lord, we ask for revenge for our two eyes. We ask that in our life you would strengthen us again. That we might see his temples come down for the glory of God. That we might see the princes with God liberated and freedom of God upon the whole earth. Lord, we're asking that You would use us to advance Your kingdom in any way that You see fit. Lord, we're asking that You would grant us a willing heart to do the things You've called us to do. We love You and thank You. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.